welcome to the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast, episode 17. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's episode 17. It's one quick thing before the interview with Eric. I've been, if, you, if, you, if you've been listening to my podcast over the last three, four months, you've noticed that the intro, of the, um, the intros, the music at the beginning of each podcast, it's something that I come up with each week. And basically, I've been trying to figure out a theme song, but I also really enjoy the idea of creating some new music each week. And same with the outro for the podcast. I come up with these intros and outros every week but this particular one from last week i'm using again this week for for the um for my interview with eric so i am curious what you think about it because for the first time i feel like i've created an intro that could actually stick around for a while and there's something about the sounds that seem to represent the downward facing spiritual spiral or at least what the podcast is about so um anyway just quickly wanted to say that and um i'm really really excited to have Los Angeles-based DJ Eric Sharp on the show. Welcome to the Tower Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. Thanks, Eddie. I'm excited to be here. I have a question for you, uh, which is maybe out of character, but uh, when you're normally interviewing guests, no, but fine. is that a uh, is the title of the podcast a reference to the Nine Inch Nails album? Well, it's a reference to a few things. Yeah, yeah obviously the Yoga Post. Yeah, but it's funny because I interviewed Joey Peters a few weeks ago, who's the drummer. Uh, or was the drummer for Grantley Buffalo. And he was the first person that actually said something about um, the name of my podcast. And I didn't want to call it the down, I didn't want to call it the downward spiral. Um, obviously, I don't think legally I could do that. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, I, that was one of my favorite records. And I, I wanted to figure out a way, a title to encapsulate this, the spiraling of our culture. Also, sort of the musical aspect of it because I'm a DJ and a musician. I completely love music. And then the downward facing, obviously in reference to yoga. So yes, it is in reference to the Nine Inch Nails record. It's a dark record. <laughs> it is. Are, are you not a fan? Oh, I mean, a, a fan in the sense, yeah, I grew up listening to Nine Inch Nails. I love them. That record is very depressing. Yeah. Nowadays, I don't listen to a lot of depressing music. Yeah, I hear you. I don't see myself jamming out to hurt. If that's more a song I would sit in the corner to and cry, which I don't <laughs> spend a lot of time doing, thankfully. I think I because he's from Ohio, um, also, and I was just always enamored by the sounds. I think you're right. The the records are are dark. He's gotten a little bit more pop, I guess. It's not. It's still not pop, but he's gotten happier, I guess, in his um, older years. But. I was, pretty hate machine had some some brighter bits too. Yes, guess. that's not totally new. Anyways, I was just curious. Yeah, you know, so so, so, there so you. this is a dark podcast. The premise of the podcast is: see, I wrote a book this past year, and it's not released yet. Um, I just finished it a week ago. Congratulations! And thank you. And so I was doing a lot of research online, and a lot of agents, uh, literary agents for first time writers are looking for people that have strong online presence. <laughs> You're rolling your eyes, which I get. I don't love Instagram because I think, and we talked about this a little earlier, I think the impact that it's having on our culture is much more negative than we realize. Now, I realize you know people can be addicted to porn or heroin and, or, or, or alcoholism, and that's obviously much worse than being addicted to Instagram. But I think collectively, when a culture of people are in their free time 
wasting it, primarily staring at meaningless photos, uh, stories, whatever that is. And people are primarily using Instagram to just look perfect all the time or to promote their shit. Um, I just think the negative impact that that's having on the culture is, and we don't know because this is all brand new, but there's a reason why I think there's more depression and anxiety. Not, I think it's proven it's, it correlates with the rise of social media. So back to the question you asked about the podcast. Um, yeah, I, so I thought in, because my, the writing that I write is very satirical, including my book, I wanted to include a podcast so agents could hear what I'm really about and not just some, you know, smart ass on Instagram and like, Oh, there's a reason why he's a smart ass because people care about likes and how many people are following them than actually, you know, real life stuff. And my last point before um, I finish answering your question, I think the art of conversation is lost. And that's the way you really deeply get to know people. And I, so the show has turned into an interview show where I'm interviewing DJs, musicians, yoga teachers, artists, because I think it's up to us to rise, raise the, the cultural shift or, or shift the culture into a, an artistic, creative, more positive place. And I, I don't want to get political, but to me, Donald Trump, in a way, sort of symbolizes the, and you could even say it started with Paris Hilton, or it started with Jesse the Body Ventura becoming the governor or mayor of, of Minnesota or Michigan, I forgot. I mean, we have become a culture obsessed with people that are really loud. They may not necessarily be intelligent, but they're really good at manipulation or really good at showing off their bodies or speaking the loudest. So I thought I should create a podcast in conjunction with writing a book that could get agents. And, and it's actually working really well. Uh, people are really responding to the podcast. People want to come on. Uh, or there's people like you that have no idea why they're coming on, but they're here because, you know, I, I asked and, and you're really cool for coming on the show. Well, thanks. I'm a fan of the format of podcasts. I enjoy them. Okay, cool. Well, I want to first off, compliment you because um, I, I'm talking a little too much about myself, so I, I don't want to, but I'm a DJ and I came to see your show a couple of weeks ago at Sound Nightclub. And I, when I DJ, it's, it's, I didn't even know the word open format, but it's typically open format where it's, you know, hip hop and reggaeton and goes, because you, you want the, the bars and clubs and want people to stay there and you can't stay with one genre for particularly one long t- uh, for a long time because people are going to, you know, want to leave. Or you can, but it needs to be, you know, top 40 or hip hop. Right. You know, playing open format gigs is very different than what I would consider to be an artist gig like you heard at Sound Nightclub because... You're you're playing to the crowd and you're you're playing to the audience and you're playing to the owners of the establishment when you're playing, uh, you know, at at any random bar that someone's going to wander into as opposed yeah. to like playing at sound. That's a curated space that is, you know, their mission is to basically push house and techno music. I mean, they do a little bit of other forms of dance music, but by and large, that's what people are expecting to hear. And then people that, you know, know my music and know my DJing are expecting to hear that. So it's very different. When people are coming to a venue to see you give a performance, uh, as opposed to just you know showing up somewhere to have drinks with their friends, right. they want a backdrop of music that they know, and it's a specific audience. It's a niche that you know that that listens to to dance music. I think, and it's a big niche. It's much bigger now than it was when I started. Yes, but, um, but it's a niche nonetheless, and so you know you can get away with like mellow deep house at a lot of you know more mixed format gigs. But I hear where you're coming. Well. 
when I came to your show and, and saw you, I, you know, I don't go to clubs much anymore other than when I'm like working or something, but I was blown away by the vibe of the spot. It, it wasn't douchey at all. It was like a really good crowd. People were, it felt positive. People were there to dance and have a good time. And you put on a freaking amazing show. I was blown. And I think I'm okay at DJing, but I saw Toki Monster open for Zoo mm -hmm. um, at, the, at the Shrine like three months ago or four months ago. Freaking blew me away. I, I just, it to me, it took the art of DJing to a whole new level. It's, it's, a, it's an art. It's a performance. I mean, she had the place captivated. And I felt the same when I saw you. I was really blown away. And I'm not just saying that. Because I'm sort of this harsh critic sometimes where like, I feel we like... We all are. Yeah. But you really, you have a sound, you had an art form, you had a way with the crowd and people were really freaking digging it. So I just want to know, first, there's so much I want to know, but I just want to talk about that night. Why do you love DJing right now? And how did the gig come up its, its sound? And we'll obviously backtrack, but, but what, right now, what's so fulfilling about DJing? Well, it's the same thing that's always been really fulfilling about DJing. I love talking about why I'm a DJ because it I have to remember. Because it's difficult. It's a difficult grind. I've been making my living exclusively DJing for the last eight years, coming up on nine. And uh, and the competition's really fierce. And it's not easy to turn your you know, craft that you absolutely love into your main business and main source of income. There's a lot that comes along with that, and it puts a lot of pressure on it. And so it's always good for me to, to think and think about why it is that I do it and what where the passion is. And for me, uh, I grew up going to underground raves, and they were still underground, and uh, dancing all night with my yeah. friends. And it was such a beautiful release, uh, and it was a very spiritual experience for me. And I got into DJing because I wanted to effectuate that experience for other people. I wanted to be, you know, some kind of a channel to to help maybe heal people a little bit or just get them in the moment and uh, and give them an experience of just being one with each other and one with the music. And that's really what the scene was about when I was growing up in it. So, yeah, um, yeah that was really, you know, I was living in San Francisco uh, and I felt like the parties were just lacking that element a little bit. The parties were really cool. Just seemed like some of the focus had drifted off the dancing and it was a little bit more who's who. Yeah. And so I started DJing, throwing parties, really with a focus on like dance floor energy. And so, um, really, what I love, you know, what I love about DJing is that ability to to reach people and to just like almost be outside of myself. I mean, when I'm in a good DJ set like the one that you saw, um, that I'm, was a good DJ set. I had a great time. I was fully in the moment. I I'm felt not, it. I'm not thinking. I'm just like I'm just in it and I'm just this conduit between the music and, and the audience yeah. and it's, and there's this like energy that reverberates back and forth where and, it, and it's a resonance where uh you know I'm I'm pumping energy through the sound system and then the crowd is feeling it building it up and pushing it back to me yeah. and so it it builds in this way. Yeah. Uh and so that's really really exciting. So that's what I you know I think one of the primary things I love about DJing is you know the ability to positively impact people and then just being at that um at that nexus of energy between, you know, the, the tracks and the crowd yeah, uh, and being able to like amp their energy up and, and feed it back to them in a way. Yeah. Well, I felt it because, um, it felt there wasn't, I mean, the volume kept getting louder and louder, but not, not in a, in a, I'm trying to overwhelm you. It was just this subtle little 
building the energy and the base gets stronger and, and people are feel, feeling that obviously. And you had like a two hour set. I think I left a little bit after 12 and you were two and a half hours. Yeah. yeah. So it was long and to be able to sustain, I mean, I looked around the room and the energy was sustained the whole time. And, and I saw all different ethnic backgrounds there. It was, it felt fun and positive. And I remember the last time I went dancing at a club, which was, you know, freaking years ago, it just, there was there almost, as you say, it was like a who's who people were trying to show off and people were there just wearing their sneakers. They weren't trying to show off. It was just a fun, fun vibe. Yeah. I have to tip my hat to sound that club on that because what they've accomplished in the, in the middle of Hollywood. Yeah. Right. Which is like the most <clears throat> scenester who's who place probably in North America. Maybe there's some areas of, you know, Manhattan that are just as bad, but you know, like it's, it's a difficult place I would imagine to build what they've built, uh, you know? And so to have that experience right in the belly of the beast, it's, it's amazing. And they do it consistently. You know, they have marketed themselves in such a way that that's the crowd they draw. Uh, and certainly I like to think that, you know, my fans are, are in that category too, who come out because they want to dance, not because they want to look cool. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, that is, it's really special. And, you know, hats off to, to, you know, Kobe and Mark who, who curate everything there because they have, they've done it. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal what they've achieved within that space where it is yeah. in, in America. It's like kind of unheard of. So it's obviously not my imagination. I mean, there's, this is a really authentic, relaxed but still cool beautiful space the lighting is the lighting is spot on um just the room is spot on the sound is spot on the the setup of where you are is just um perfect i don't know it's just it was it was so i was so pleasantly surprised um because um so often as you say places in hollywood can just be so it's just a scene and, um, yeah, or a meat market. Yeah, totally. How did you get the gig there? I've been really fortunate. I've been a resident DJ at Sound for a number of years now. Um, it, I'm not even really sure why the their booker reached out to me. I don't know if she had ever heard me. I mean, I used to I used to go there just all the time, and I certainly have. You know, I've been DJing since 2005, and you know, I've certainly established some credibility. Uh, as as a DJ and as an artist, I'm not sure why she tapped me for this one gig, but she had me. I, she brought me into open for Holy Ghost. I think this is in like May of 2014, and uh, and it went really really well. And I think I brought a bunch of people, and I played really well. And and we just since then, you know, kept rolling. And then uh, maybe a year a year and some change ago. Uh, they formally announced me as one of their residents. So, but I've been playing regularly at Sound since that first gig, pretty much. Uh, and yeah, I feel really fortunate. I mean, it's to me one of the it's certainly the one of the top venues in LA, if not in North America, to to play dance music. Yeah. How often are you there? Roughly every two months, I would say, on average. Okay. And then where else do you DJ in Los Angeles? Um, it's, it varies. I DJ for Daybreaker from time to time. I'm not okay. sure if yeah, sure. Yoga, you're familiar uh-huh. with them. They're, they're great. Uh, I recently played at exchange. I opened for Nora and pure there. That was super fun. Oh, wow. 
Uh, I play typically at least one Wicked Paradise event a year. They do these really fun pool parties in the summer. And in, in the summer, I get booked a lot at, at pools and like the standard and rooftops. And yeah. yeah, Standard or Mondrian or uh, the W Rooftop with Aaron Colbert, sure. who you mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so summers tend to be a, a little busier for me than, yeah. than winters. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, mostly where, where I play, you know, house and techno and, uh, you know, I certainly do private events and, and, you know, and private bookings that I don't announce to the public where, you know, I don't get to play whatever I want, but, um, you know, I do a lot of that as well. So, um, you might bump into me, you know, DJing at the Tau properties, uh, in Hollywood or, you know, at the Wellsborn in West LA or something like that. Um, if you happen to wander in my, I never advertise. Like yeah. 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 Well, I want to play a few songs. Can I play a few songs? Yeah. So we're gonna. I'm gonna play like two or three songs, um, and then I want to. Then I want to talk about them. Okay. Thank you. 
So, I mean, you're more than, you're, I mean, you're obviously a DJ, but you're also a producer. I mean, you're producing these songs and um, you're putting all the beats together. And, and are you doing all the instrumentation? It varies. Sometimes I collaborate with instrumentalists. Okay. Sometimes I write everything myself. Yeah. And like the, the song with Gavin, uh, how did you get a hold of, of Gavin to be a part of the song? Gavin and I were introduced by my friend Christina who works for Red Bull and Christina was a fan of my music and said, you should really check this girl Gavin out. You guys should do something together. And she just kind of introduced us and it was Gavin's gotten really popular. It was before all of that. And uh, Gavin was working on an EP with Tokimasa and was just excited to do some different electronic music. And so I sent her this, uh, this demo and you know, she wrote the, the top one to it, which is funny because I don't write like that anymore. Nowadays, everything that uh, comes out with my name on it, I've written the lyrics to, yeah. or co-written the lyrics to. But at that time, uh, I just kind of let her run with it. But I really liked what she did, um, you know, with the melodies and with the vocals and the lyrics. So, um, yeah, it was kind of just an introduction, you know, being in the right place, knowing the right people. Like, yeah. And I saw that you opened for Moon Booths, um, yeah, sometime in, like the last year and a half or so. Yeah, How- actually twice. Um, I opened for him at Sound. And uh, I also played with him uh, at a pool party that Coachella produced off Coachella uh, at Palm Springs okay. in the spring. Yeah. Um, talk to me about Surrender Dorothy. Uh, so Surrender Dorothy was a collaboration I made with a local LA DJ named Daisy Odell, who sang on that record too. And this was back in 2013 when I had signed an EP to Win Music, okay. which... Uh, so Sean Glass ran that label and he had put out Duke Dumont Need You 100% in the U.S., which was like one of the first really big house hits. 
in in the modern era, and uh, that song got nominated for a Grammy. So uh, Sean signed my EP, and I was super stoked. And um, that mix that you like of it was uh, a mix by a dude named Curses, who also has an alias called Drop the Lime, uh, and he was like really big and kind of you know late late 2000 he had a label called trouble and bass and he's just like he's a really cool dude i think he's still living in germany now but um he you know he came on board to do the remix and i was like blown away because he'd been one of my musical idols yeah um so to have someone i really respected remix that track uh in the way that he did where he like stayed true to the original but he definitely put his stamp on it made it more bass heavy and a little darker like yeah that was that was really cool to, to get to experience that um, do you have like a, a manager that helps you get gigs or that you're, you're, you're it. You're, no, you're I have, PR. I have a booker who handles, um, actually Aaron Colbert handles uh, kind of my more private side of my gigs. Okay. Um, once in a while, you know, we'll do a public performance. It's very rare. Uh, and then, but no, all the, all the public gigs I have at this point, um, I'm, I'm lining all of that up myself. So let me talk to you about that. Um, it's so competitive out here and i feel like the dj world has gotten really popular out it's here very saturated there's there's the word very saturated so i mean obviously you have a, a name and people sort of know what they're getting into when they hire you and you have a sound but you obviously can play open format too so you know how do you and you you're making a living only being a dj right now so how how much of your time is spent marketing trying to get new gigs how much time are you you know working on your craft how are you juggling this how are you managing getting more gigs what's a typical sort of week or day for you and what's what's your time a lot a lot of towards there isn't one which i really <laughs> enjoy i'm not really much of a routine type person i have a gym routine other than that you right. know that's about the most most consistent uh steady scheduled thing that i do beyond that uh, it, I kind of, it's like you're saying, I like the juggling analogy. I think about, uh, if, if your listeners are familiar with Chinese plates where you're, you're, you know, you're holding these two rods and you're keeping all these different plates spinning in the air. And that's really how it is. Uh, sometimes I, you know, I have an opportunity to produce an EP for a label. And so I have to really dive in and, you know, bang out a bunch of tracks in the studio and make demos and figure out which ones are going to work. And then, you know, really hone those in and then mix them and master them. Uh, other times I'm like, oh man, uh, I got a tough month ahead. If I don't like pick up some gigs, yeah, I better hustle. Cause I do, I do, you're right. I do have a name. And so I do get inbound requests, you know, with some frequency. Uh, and I do have regular spots that, that I play at, which helps because I don't, you know, I mean, I have to stay in touch with the bookers of those spots, but it's not, it's not the same as like acquiring new business. Um, but if things start to drop off, I definitely, that's number one because my primary source of income is, is the gig. So, uh, I'll have to put energy into that or, um, you know, and certainly I, I am pretty sporadic with my social media marketing these days. Um, yeah, you don't use Instagram that much. I do. I do in spurts. Sometimes I'm really on top of it. Other times I just can't be bothered. Sure. And, you know, I, I it's like, you know, you were talking earlier about, uh, you know, trying to get a book deal and that people really care about, you know, followers. And I think now it's it's even more important engagement beyond that. But um you know, and in, in the music business, I've seen that target move so many different times. They keep moving the goalpost. Uh, you know, at first it was how many MySpace friends do you have? Right. And, you know, and that that was never that important. And then when Facebook likes took off, that's when really it shifted. And people started booking people based on Facebook likes. The stupid thing about that was it was so easy to game that and people would fake it. And so you had these manufactured, quote unquote, artists who... 
you know, would game the system and have all these Facebook likes, they'd show up in a market and get paid some stupidly big guarantee and no one would show up because they didn't have real fans. They're all bots. Um, But that happened. And then it went from Facebook. uh, I think the next thing that really blew up in music was SoundCloud. And so it became this thing of like, you know, having a lot of SoundCloud streams and followers. And then it moved to Instagram. And I think now the focus is a lot more on, on Spotify than anything else, yeah. um, which I appreciate. I, I, I like the metric being SoundCloud or Spotify more so than, you know, a platform that's just social media, because that at least measures how many people are actually listening to your music. Right. Because the social media game, it's 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 a completely different skill set, I think. And it's. It's important to be present on there. I mean, obviously, I, I maintain some level of presence. And, you know, I'm sure people find out about my shows because I announce them on there and things like that. And, you know, I announce releases on there. And, that, you know, I like to give people some window into who I am or use that platform to kind of communicate with people, whether it's having some positive message or right. sharing something that's going on in my world. But, um, yeah, I find that you don't take selfies all the time and you don't know, take pictures of your nah, food you I, eat. I can't be bothered. I mean, <laughs> I know that it would probably be good for my brand to do those types of things. And, you know, maybe one day I will, if, you know, if, if something really pops off and I have a huge following that I need to, you know, kind of feed the beast and cater to. But uh, I tend to think we're doing those, you know, we're doing those social media companies more favors than they're doing for us. And, you know, by, by creating content, you know, for them to serve ads around. And so, yeah, I'm, you know, I, so I, I do feel compelled to participate sometimes. I know it's sort of an obligatory point of passage and it's important that I have a, you know, for me, those platforms are really just an extension of my brand, an extension of my business. And so it's important that they look good. It's important that any random person who's not familiar with me that wants to learn about me can look me up on wherever they they prefer, whether they like to listen to music on SoundCloud, whether they like sure. to check people out on Instagram, whether they like to look at people's Facebook and they can get a sense of you know who I am and what I'm doing. But ideally, I don't want them there. I want them to go, you know, engage with my Spotify or, you know, go on their iTunes library and listen to my stuff or go on Mixcloud and hear some of my live sets or things like that. I, you know, so I put little bits of carrot, but not, I, I mean, it's, it, they're breadcrumbs to me. You know, it's, it's yeah. not my primary focus. And yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of DJs that, have, you know, at this point have built their name on having tons of Instagram follows. And that's just kind of not my game, you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's funny. I'm always curious how the conversation <clears throat> is going to move towards Instagram or, you know, social media. So, how, I mean, expand. I want to read something to you. I read it this week um, on my last podcast, and I just want to get your reaction. It's from the New York um, New York Magazine. What's gone from the Internet, after all, isn't truth, but trust. The sense of the people and things we encounter are what they represent themselves to be. Years of metrics-driven gro- driven growth lucrative manipulative systems and and unregulated platforms have created an environment where it makes more sense to be fake online, to to lie and cheat, to misrepresent and distort than it does to be real. And I think that's... So what are your thoughts on Instagram? I mean, I, I think we talked about this earlier. There's worse things to be addicted to. Um, but I think our brains are getting manipulated by the bots, by the fake accounts, by all the pretty pictures. And we think that everybody is happy and perfect all the time, but studies show that there's more addiction and depression and anxiety than ever before. And it's proven that these social media platforms are the problem. 
Maybe they are. I'm not sure that correlation is causation in, in this. I mean, there's plenty of other things we could point to. Widening gap between haves and have-nots, disappearing middle class, um, yeah. you know, people's lives themselves not being great, right? Like we live in the, you know, one of the, not the richest, Sweden is the richest country in the world, but we live in one of the richest countries in the world. And yet for most people, the standard of living is lower than it should be. Right. And so uh, I think people are seeking escapes. And I think social media is one way for them to do that. And uh, the other thing is, like, I've always thought this about social media. I tend to share a lot on social media. And I think I have a really awesome life. You know, I mean, I think generally speaking, sure, I have ups and downs. I have challenges. But I uh, just through whether it's, you know, random sequences of events or good luck or, you know, being someone who seizes opportunities I just get to have a lot of really cool experiences in my life that I maybe take for granted sometimes, particularly like working in music, you know, being yeah. backstage and, you know, being able to rub elbows with people I think are insanely talented. And, I, you know, I've opened for a dream list of artists and things like that. So I think I'm someone who, you know, I've always I kind of share on social media. You know, I, I, I'm like, hey, check this out. I'm doing this. This is awesome. Or this, whatever. This is cool. Or um, not everyone's like that. I think a lot of people lurk. On social media way more than they share uh, oh, I think totally. I think the social media companies want people sharing I don't think everybody's doing that I think the bulk of people they share maybe once in a while but most of the time they're just on there kind of lurking and I think people live vicariously through other people I think if people are not happy with their life so it's kind of like which comes first the chicken or the egg are people right. becoming depressed because they're on social media going oh man look at all this amazing stuff that I'm not part of well that happens sometimes and I've certainly like I I've certainly seen things on social media you know, that are happening that I feel like I should be a part of sure. that I didn't get an invite for. And then I feel like, you know, a bunch of people I know are sharing stories. And that's, you know, that's a bummer. You get that fear of missing out. So I think that's a, maybe a piece of it. But I think more commonly, it's like people aren't happy with their lives. So they're going on social media as a distraction or as a way for them to feel like they can have access to something that they can't physically experience in their yeah. own life. So, you know, people who feel for whatever reason they do, and God knows why it is, but people feel connected to Kim Kardashian and they wish they could be her. And, you know, they're never going to have her life. They're never going to have her money. They're never going to have her fame. They're never going to have her connections. They're never going to have her access. But they can go and they can participate in, in a voyeuristic way, you know, by 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 looking at her, her feed or her stories. Um, you know, it can take them out of whatever whatever discontent they're in in their own life whatever they're small who knows where they are and what they're doing and 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 so it's it's an escape for them um well i think it starts out as an escape but it ends up making them feel bad i, I mean i think it started out as people posting going there in their free time but <clears throat> well also instagram you know i, I know that that you focus on Instagram a lot. Instagram is, is a very different platform than Facebook. Uh, Facebook initially started as a way for people to connect to other people that they knew. Uh, right. You know, I remember when I, you know, it was, there's a time when I was like, I didn't bother getting people's phone number when I would meet them at a party because I would just look them up on Facebook the next day and we would connect that way. And then we would message and, you know, we would have access to each other that way. Uh, Instagram is different. Instagram didn't start that way. At, Instagram was just a photo sharing service at first. And right. it's, it's, you know, <laughs> Well, and then Facebook bought it. So it kind of gets back to, you know, I think what you think about Facebook as a company and Mark Zuckerberg. And I know that I was really disappointed when, when Facebook purchased Instagram because their business model is, is contingent on throttling people's reach. What they do is that, you know, they, 
they they get people on their platform and it's it's a it's a bait and switch like this is how it happened with Facebook where your posts would have a ton of reach and mm-hmm. you know and I loved it because you know as an, as a as a DJ people could find me on Facebook and like my page and then they would see my content right and it was really cool because I'm building this community and then all of a sudden you know they roll out um, they start rolling out Facebook ads and then the next thing you know. Uh, if you don't promote a post, yeah, people don't like re- your shit. Well, they just don't see it. Well, that's it's not I mean, that they that's don't like I mean, it. Right? Yeah, they don't, they're, they're, they don't so, see so it. So the the, mm-hmm. the platform is deciding, you know, what content does and doesn't get seen. And sure, every so often, if you share a lot, something will break through just because people think it's really cool, and right. you know, it, it hits this like right uh, mix of engagement. But more often than not, you know, you'll just see. So it's like it's it's disapp- There's a bit of disappointment when you post something and no one engages with it. Um, and so for Instagram, I just knew they were going to do the exact same thing. It didn't used to be that, you know, it started off, Instagram was a chronological feed. You could just kind of go on there and just scroll through and see what was going on. But that's, that's they, why, but, but they, they, they implemented that same, like what I see is like a BS algorithm that they use to, to squeeze money out of people on Facebook. They're doing the same thing on Instagram. They're trying to steer people into having business profiles instead of yes. having personal profiles. <laughs> And then I, I just know that's going to be the exact same thing they're going to do. They're going to throttle the reach. They, and, and they already, you know, I knew when they impl- implemented an algorithm that dictates what you see, that it was going, that's, that's because that's the setup for it. Because then they can just say, oh, well, it's the algorithms. You just see what the algorithm shows you. Right. Well, then they're controlling what it is that you're seeing. And if you're not just seeing a flat, um, you know, a flat timeline of content. And that's particularly frustrating, you know, if you're, if you're trying to, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I see a flyer for a show that happened three days ago. There's no reason for me to see <laughs> right. that, right? There's, like, there's functionally makes no sense, and I'm like, oh, that might have been cool to go to if I had seen that before it happened, you right? Know? So, um, I just I think why pick on Instagram more? <clears throat> Be- because it's just photos. Every time you, in, in, on Facebook. There could be an interruption of a news story, or maybe you follow you too, and they're like releasing a new album or something. Instagram, because it's just imagery and you're scrolling so fast, your brain is actually feeling something different so quickly and so fast. And then the light turns around for the stories. It is making brains like hyperactive and, and so fast and, 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 and an inability to sit still and, and, I think that's not just social media either. That's, I think I mean, that's completely. just that's just the speed of technology. Uh, you know how addicted we are to our mobile devices. You know how quick the apps move. Everything like that. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely shortened our attention span and, and shortened people's patience. But, I mean, I think that's probably fair to say. I don't have data to correlate or back that up, <laughs> right. but I would be shocked if that wasn't the case. You know, and in, I just in think- the same way that like people probably, um, I think there's been tests on this. Again, I mean, this is part of the like the the fog of of internet content is like i don't remember where i read this and if it was a really reputable source or not but it seems to make sense to me um you know i think i read that people don't remember things as well because everything's referenceable instantly so it's it's more that they know how to find the information than actually knowing the information like when i you know when i was in school i memorized tons of things um and I think now with as accessible as Google is, people don't necessarily need to memorize things because they can just look it up in an instant. Right. So, yeah, I think I think that but I think a, that social media is a piece of that. And the way that people use social media is a piece of that. Yeah. I mean, that attention span, even like getting, you know, let's say let's say you and I were 
had our phones on the counter and, you know, we kept getting texts. And I mean, that would obviously impact our conversation and our ability to talk and communicate. So I think you're right. I mean, cell phones are contributing to it as well. But I think there's something about the filters, the Im- just being images. They're your oh, sure. It's, and they're it, your friends. Yeah. And then everybody wants to like become a model or a celebrity now. So Instagram has perfectly created this platform where everybody can actually create these perfect celebrity-driven profiles. And so it's it's like made it. It's I just think it's having a deeper impact psychologically. Although all these other things you're talking about are affecting us, I think Instagram has taken it to a new level. Yeah, I think. Well, we discussed this a little bit too. I think there's. There, there is a nuance to it as well. I do think that more and more people are understanding that it is a curated version of people's selves. I think people understand that you don't really know what's going on with someone just from looking at their socials anymore. Right. I think that's healthy and good. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's important for people to go deeper than, you know, just what people choose to share with the billboard. And that's part of, I think, the problem with social media, too, is it doesn't do a good job of delineating Um the level of intimacy you have with people. I mean, Facebook, I don't even know why we're talking about Facebook. No one's even on Facebook. I know. I don't use it anymore. Right. I I rarely do as well. I use it to post announcements and stuff. But with Instagram, I mean, they've just like introduced this new circle of like, you can have close friends or share things publicly. Yes. But then that's still a one and zero. It's either you're my close friend or you're an acquaintance. There's no in between. Right. So I might sit like, and, and in person, I might trust someone and, and choose to share very intimate details of my life and someone else I might just give them, you know, you know, I'm not going to tell them what is happening with my parents. Right. So. <laughs> right. So I, I think that is maybe a danger of doing so much interaction on social media. Perhaps there is a, a, a possibility of losing those delineations um, for an audience of people. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I didn't grow up on social media, you know, so I learned social skills yeah, face to thing. face. Right. And you know, I, I think, I think a lot gets lost in digital representations, whether it's via text, uh, via photos you share, whatever it is. I think these are, they're, they're static and they're flat and, um, you know, they, they don't have the nuance that's required uh, to communicate deeply or, you know, or, or, or come to like any kind of a mutual understanding. It's a one-way communication. You know, you're broadcasting things. You're putting a billboard out there. Um, and, and I think, so I guess I, I don't think it's inherently problematic. And I think there are people using Instagram in ways that are really, really cool. Uh, I think that, you know, some of your, your snark is super interesting and fun and, uh, and great commentary, you know, in a satirical way on some of the shortfalls of, of the platform of Instagram. It's kind of funny that you're using the platform to of diss course. the platform. Um, because but, that's where everybody's going. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked about Ray too, um, you know, my partner, and she does this really cool thing where she uh, posts, you know, she takes the time to really write out uh, and caption things in a way that is very uplifting for her followers. Yeah. You know, and it becomes an extension that way of like, you know, being a positive influence on people uh so i think there are ways to use it that that are positive that are not self-aggrandizing um and uh, and and it's kind of incumbent on us on how, how we use that right so it's tricky to me talking about technology i took some great technology courses in college and 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 there's a question of 
does technology have an inherent ideology written into it? And in some ways it does, and in some ways it doesn't. In 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 some ways, just the fact that we use it and how you know how the thing functions can pattern our perception. In other ways, I do think we have a lot of agency in terms of okay, this is the tool. How do I use it? What do I do with this? Right. And, and you know, specific to Instagram, it's like, what am I putting into the world? You know, am I am I just bragging about how good my life is? Uh, or, you know, am I sharing things that I think will better other people's lives? You know, for me, like I said, it's, it's, there's, it's very directive focused. Um, by and large, it's, you know, it's an extension of my persona, of my brand, you know, of my artist brand. And to be frank, I think if I wasn't an artist, I don't know if I would use it at all. Yeah. It seems like you have a. It seems like you have a slightly more positive outlook on it. Or I, I guess I think my only. We'll, we'll close this, the topic with this, and I'll hear your thought. I think the vast majority of people now are are using it to um, look good, promote something. Or try to look perfect, look pretty, and it feels unreal. But here's the thing that's interesting to me. I feel like our brains emotionally are absorbing it as though it's real. And like our brains don't know the difference. Very similarly to like a movie. You know, you go into a really violent movie, it's going to have a huge impact on you, even though it's a movie. Um, And somehow I feel like people are getting really affected by it in in ways that nobody really anticipated. Of course, and I think that's typical with technology. It's, It's really difficult to examine the implications of implementing any kind. I mean, think any piece of technology before you do it right uh i mean and that's that's one of the that's one of the big challenges i think we have as a society we never ask the question should we develop this we never ever ask that question we have a a cultural ethos or a myth that is technology is progress and it's positive Mm, so we never ask the question should should everyone have cell phones on them at all times we never ask the question if we should always be accessible we never ask the question of How's it going to impact us if everyone is a computer user? If every job requires sitting in front of a screen, yeah. typing on a keyboard, right? We never ask those questions. So uh, we end up doing, you know, these what are essentially massive social experiments, you know, and sometimes they go well and sometimes they don't. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the jury is kind of still out on social media, you know, and and it's one of those it's one of those things we never ask like. Should we be sharing every bit of our life online? Should we give up our privacy? You know, should we uh, give ownership of our content to companies who we don't know what their intentions or motives are? No one reads the terms and conditions of anything. No. You know, and unless you're a really good lawyer, even if you read them, you're not going to understand them. Right. So um, I do think that I do think there are written there are inherent implications written into 
social media. I think how we share information, uh, I think an erosion of privacy. Uh, I think, again, this um, lack of delineation between how much do I trust this person? Uh, you know, who, who do I get to share what with? It's all or nothing for the most part, you know, unless you're like, and I, I'm sure most people don't even use the close friends feature. I only just saw it rolled out, but like, yeah. You know, I think most people probably aren't doing that. It's just they're just because they want lots of likes. Right? I mean, you know, people get hooked on that dopamine, you know, that and that that there are studies behind where, you know, they get used to. I post something that I get all this feedback from right. people and I feel loved and I feel appreciated. Right. And so why would you pick four people to see something? What's the point of even then? I mean, I guess if you really want those people to know what's going on in your life, you can do that. But that's, you know, I think a lot of people who are looking for that validation and looking for like a, a large volume of engagement and likes, they're just going to be posting in their public feed. So we, we don't, you know, I think there's there's so many different levels of closeness and friendship and different kinds of friendships, right? Like I have, I have fans, that's so weird to me, but I have people who are just fans of my music and they feel connected to me that way. But then I have people who I have like real life relationships with and then I have business associates and acquaintances that way and uh, you know, and I have people who I'm like personally connected to and we don't have a good way through social media of parsing that. And so that to me is, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself there, but it's, that's one of the implications that I think is written into the technology. That is, it's a one or a zero. It's, it's, on hmm. you know, on Instagram, it's like you follow me or you don't, and I follow you back or I don't. And that's, that's the, that's the amount of intimacy I can have. Well, it's sort of, I feel like in that we brought up, you talked about the like that that's that's it that's the only option that they give us yeah. to like something or or comment yeah and I, honestly like you know i tend to like people's things just cuz i want more people to see it right so like my friends i support them so sometimes i'll just go through instagram and like stuff i only follow people that i like care about for the most part or i think they're really interesting but I'll just scroll through, and, and, and I understand that it's an algorithm. I understand the algorithm is fed on engagement. So if I like someone's thing, it's likely more people will more see pe- it. They're that, gonna, that's they're, why it's going to show up on that's more feeds. That's why I participate that way. Wow. Yeah, that's that's typically like that's how I think about it. You know, I want my friends to succeed, and so it's a way if I can support them in a very small way. But um, you know, I think people support each other that way too. I'm sure a lot of my friends like my stuff for the same reason. But it's a little different, you know, when you're when you're an artist than a brand as opposed to just a you know. A regular everyday person. I don't know how those people use social. Media. I have no idea. You know, I wouldn't. Yeah. Wouldn't well, I the think they post, you know, cat photos and food pictures and pictures of their family and yeah. or memes. Yeah, a lot of memes. Which I enjoy memes. I like making memes. It's fun. <laughs> I think. Well, I, have you watched the new film on Netflix called? I haven't seen it. I have. You've heard it. about it, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a new movie called American Meme about all these Instagram celebrities and um. I guess we'll, we'll close this segment that I want to ask about DJing and how you got into it and your artistic path. And then, I mean, I get, I'm obviously a little, probably a little bit more pessimistic about it, but when I see people like Paris Hilton and the fat Jewish and, uh, Brittany Furlan and all these people becoming celebrities on the one hand, it's, it's, it's a great platform because you can reach a lot of people. But then I think about the whole free time factor and when kids and their teens college they're spending all their free time obsessing and absorbing these instagram celebrities and the kardashians and i it seems harmless but i think i've actually felt artistically our culture doesn't seem to be as good as it used to be 
And I know that'll never be proven. I guess I feel like that's a straw man. Here's what I see as like one of the huge benefits to social media. And yes, the feeds are curated uh, to an extent algorithmically. But content does have the opportunity and the chance to rise to the top in an uncensored way. And the it's it it isn't the case that people weren't trying to distract themselves then. I mean, people have been watching TV heavily since the fifties. Right. Before that, it was reading the newspaper. But there was a stranglehold on what got printed or what made it to TV. Right. So you have things happening with Twitter in Egypt where people are getting around, you know, a a, a very heavily tightly controlled media. I think that's really really important. So the potential is there. For really awesome things to happen with social media, you know, for revolutions of ideas to occur. I think that, you know, I think we got really enamored with that possibility and promise. And that there are stories of that happening that are really amazing. But by and large, it's, you know, it's it's a lot more mundane than that, right? Yeah, so, sure. So I do think, you know, why do we make certain people famous? I have no idea. It, it, it's it's a giant mystery to me, and it's a weird fascination people have with them, and I it makes no sense to me. Um, but as a DJ, and <clears throat> you know, you brought up some people get gigs because they have fifteen thousand likes, but they bought them. I mean, that must piss you off, or because I know, I mean, you have a good gig going on right now, but you know, our culture's shifting where they're valuing numbers more than actually talent. Well, like I said, music has shifted, and so I think that the focus on with music is is less on Instagram, right? Like I'm coming up on I might even already hit it, I haven't looked, but coming up on a million Spotify streams, which for me is like a huge accomplishment. That's, a huge That's deal. like a million times that people have listened to my songs that I've written. Uh and that that to me, you know, I, I like that. That's probably as important now, if not more important, I think. In terms of you know who managers are looking at to take on and who and and but really I guess it can be any of these things. Uh, I try to not compare myself to other people because that's just a just a recipe to feel bad about myself. Just mm. like you're saying, I mean, I can easily you know I can look back and I can get super frustrated about like this person has just gotten into the game and they don't have anywhere near like the accolades I have, the accomplishments I do. And yet they're on this super cool booking agency and they're on tour, which is what I want to be doing. Right. And I've been pursuing that for, you know, heavily for a number of years now. And it just hasn't happened for a number of reasons. And, you know, um, and, but it's not for lack of effort, you know? And so it's really easy to, to sit there and look at that and go and get frustrated, you know, whether it's, because they have a big social media thing, because they know the right people, because they went and went to the right school and were in the right fraternity with the right guy, whatever it is, right? Right. And um, I, you know, I just think it comes back to um, you have to do this stuff because you love doing it. If you're in a creative field, you have to stick with with that passion, and you have to be willing to persevere. And if you have those opportunities that are handed to you, great. But I think it's important to not give up if, if you don't. I mean, I know people that are born into music that, you know, could just do anything they want and they're going to succeed because everybody knows them and, you know, just based on the strength of their Rolodex and they could just basically do whatever they wanted, you know, or they have so much money that they can, you can't like literally buy success, but you can hire people to write music sure. for you. You can hire people to promote your music. You can build a team if you have enough cash. Um, that will practically ensure your success, right? 
I don't have the ability to do that. I come from nothing. So for me, it's like a lot of persistence and hard work. So sure, it would be easy for me to compare myself to these other people and get frustrated. And that happens at times. And then I just have to come back to like, well, that all may be true. And at the same time, um, I know that all the success that I've had, nothing's been handed to me. Hmm. I've worked super hard for all of it. And, and, and I stay close to why I do it. I stay close to that passion that we talked about at the beginning. Um, and that's what fuels me and that's what drives me. And, you know, for me, this is about impacting people positively. And, and it's amazing that I don't have to have another job. But at the end of the day, it's like if I can help people escape from whatever difficulties are going on in their life for a minute on the dance floor or for a minute when they hear my song or if they feel a little bit less alone or like someone gets them or someone relates to them because they hear something I've written. That's like an amazing contribution to the world. And I try to keep it keep it focused around that, you know, and, and on the impact that what I do has rather than what can I get? I try to think about what can I bring. So I want to talk about how you got into DJing and how you got into music. And uh, you mentioned that you're from San Francisco. Well, I came up in San Francisco. I grew up outside of Boston. Okay. So how did you, when did you first, like what art were you, did you start out as a musician? What artists really got you excited? Or how did you get into the world of DJing? So I grew up playing trumpet first. And so I was classically trained to play trumpet. I was in band at school and I took lessons and learned how to read music. And then I taught myself to play guitar after that. And then I kind of put down music for a while. Uh, and I, so I came into this whole world of DJing as, as a dancer. Uh, and I was in high school in the mid nineties when the rave scene was really starting to pop off. And I just thought the rave flyers were really cool. And, you know, a buddy of mine who I had flunked gym class. And so I was in summer school for gym cause I just never showed up. And, and so there was this raver kid who he, you know, he would talk about how cool the scene was and he gave me a mixtape and. Uh, and it was just a very, you know, that at the time it was, it was a really an underground scene. It was a very specific community of people is pre social media. So you had to know someone who gave you a flyer to find out about a party or, and you would have to call an info line and get directions because they wouldn't be posted anywhere. And this there was, was in Boston. no GPS this is around the new England. Okay, I mean, new England yeah. was like one scene. And so. I got into it and, and really started getting into dancing. And I was a break dancer. That's how I first was interacting with the scene. I would go out with my buddies and we would practice during the week. And then we would go and break dance all night at raves. And it was super fun. And, uh, and then I, when I moved to San Francisco after college, uh, I would go out dancing there. And like I think I alluded to earlier, I just felt like something was missing. So wait, you weren't DJing as of yet. No. Now, why did you come out to San Francisco? I knew I wanted to leave Boston. I loved the music coming out of San Francisco. It had a reputation of being super sexually open, which I was interested in. And uh, I knew I wanted to come to California. And cool. it was like the right size city. I didn't feel overwhelmed by it. It was it's even a little bit smaller than Boston. Yeah. And it was also right after the dot-com crash. So the cost of living had come down. It wasn't. It's gone way back up since then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's not really tenable now unless you work for a tech company. But, uh, at the time it was just, you know, I I just felt really enamored with the culture of San Francisco and, uh, and I wasn't disappointed. I mean, I was a little taken off guard by the hipster movement, um, which was kind of, 
I don't know, people call me a hipster now and it's so strange to me because <laughs> to me that was like a very specific group of people in Brooklyn and San Francisco and England uh, circa like 2001 who had a very specific fashion sense and a very specific uh, way of life um, that, you know, I never felt anywhere near cool enough to hang with those guys. Right. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I, I just moved to San Francisco. I, I took a job that I was working on doing fundraising for environmental groups Um door to door and I just like took that job out there because I worked for a national company and so I started working out of that office and just started building a life there you know it was like I wanted to do something um I wanted to move somewhere just because I wanted to be there not for any other reason because I had moved for college and I had moved for a girlfriend right. and I was like I want to just go start my own life and so I, I you know I chose San Francisco and I'm really glad I did it was really amazing and um you know I moved to San Francisco at a time when it was just an oasis it was an oasis in between dot-com booms and uh freaks were celebrated it was cool to be weird and um and so yeah so but like i you know like i mentioned um you know i felt like something was a little bit missing from the scene and uh and when i left the job i had been at um i kind of i saw a this is funny i saw a flyer in a record store that you could like hand out flyers and get paid to go out (laughs) And so right. I took that job and so I was, you know, had got into everything for free and was just handing out tons of flyers for this company called YBR Promotions. They're still around. Uh, and then on a lark, I just looked on Craigslist and saw a crazy deal on turntables. And so I was like, all right, I'll buy them. And I had messed around a little bit. I think in like 2001, uh, my good friend had just shown me like very basics on how to mix records. And we'd spent some time just kind of messing around like just a couple hours. And so I bought these turntables and a really cheap mixer and I started collecting records and I got hooked immediately. Like I would lock myself in my apartment and just mix records for, you know, eight or nine hours in a row. And then like what kind of music? Uh, oh, house music. Okay. Yeah. I was really, um, I came up really excited by Chicago house music. So it was kind of like Chicago house it was jazzy, funky. Uh, that was the sort of stuff I really liked at first. And, um, and then I wound up, I was getting ready to move into like a live work loft warehouse space in the Tenderloin, which is, it's really funny. The Tenderloin's like a cool neighborhood now. It wasn't yet. Uh, it was really downtrodden. But we, um, so I'm getting ready to move into this place. And it was just like, you know, basically like a confluence, uh, you know, like a perfect storm where I'm getting ready to move into this place. I went to Miami to go to Winter Music Conference. I met this amazing DJ named Roy Davis Jr., who's also like an incredible human being and whose music I had loved for a long time. And we became friends right away. And then it just so happened that the following month, he was coming to San Francisco to do, you know, kind of the big, at the time that it's done now, but there was a club called Ruby Sky that's like the big commercial venue in San Francisco. So he was coming to play there. And I was like, man, your music's so good and you're so original and underground, like, let's throw you a real party, like, you know, play that club gig, but then we'll do like a secret after hours, right? right. At this warehouse that I was moving into. And so, uh, I put that together and, um, and that became like the first time I ever DJed out. And, um, I had only been playing for like a month at that point or maybe a month and a half. And it just like, it just, everything lined up, you know? So he came, he did the gig. He actually flew a friend of his out from Chicago. So there were two Chicago DJs at my first party and uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no guest list. I charged everybody. I didn't care who you were. Uh, and 
And we didn't charge very much. I wasn't trying to make a ton of money. I just wanted to cover costs. So I charged like eight bucks. And so to see this headliner for that was like crazy. And he played for super cheap just because he liked what I was doing and he was already being paid by the big club. And, um, were you lugging records to the gig? Oh yeah. You were? Okay. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so that was the first time I ever DJed out and it went really well. And I think as a combination, like, I don't think I played a great set, but I didn't blow it. And, um, and people saw that I had brought, like, you know, the party packed out. There was like, the whole industry was there and there was, you know, a few hundred people. And for that being my first party, I think it really impressed people. And so, um, in a way, you know, music's always been about more than just your talent. And people saw that I could get a crowd out. Yeah. So I got a residency right away at this little spot called the Red Eye Lounge in San Francisco. And then, um, it just kind of built from there. Um, you know, I kept throwing parties for a few years and those got bigger and bigger. Uh, and I teamed up with some other promoters and other DJs and did some really fun events and then hit a point in 2007, 2008. This is when the, the web 2.0 boom starting to really happen and social media is blowing up and the apps and, um, user interface design is really big and Facebook's exploding, Google's exploding, Apple's exploding. So you're getting this influx of like new money into the city and so things change i also think there was a new police commissioner or something but long story short they start cracking down on all these underground parties and okay. so instead of because that's what always what i did I did warehouse parties i didn't throw parties in clubs at first um i just threw these parties that would go from 10 o'clock to like 7 10 p.m to like 7 o'clock in the morning wow. and we'd stay open all night and uh and it was super fun and and um and then they started cracking down on them because, you know, like all of a sudden these neighborhoods that have been like pretty much sort of industrial or commercial and, you know, no one would even know what was going on at night. All of a sudden now there's a million dollar condo and some family has moved into it and they have a kid. And so they don't want to hear noise at yeah. three o'clock in the morning. So they're calling, complaining, combination of that and like a new directive. And so they start like, you know, really cracking down on parties. And then at one point they start like. Not only are they like busting the parties up, but they're like confiscating gear. And at this point, my, our parties were pretty big and I was risking a lot of money on them. And I just felt like, you know, I'm going to be in a really bad position if I, you know, lay out 10K on a party and then the cops break it up before the yeah. doors open because I don't sell pre-sales, you know, and I'm just going to put myself in a really bad position. And so I, we, you know, me and some of the partners in, in our parties, but then in, on my own too, just I just kind of decided to turn away from doing the warehouse parties and just started doing parties and clubs. And that was, that was different. And, and I didn't have the same level of success so certainly at the outset. Um, and it's, it's a really different mindset, but I got into, you know, promoting club events and DJing in clubs. Um, and then, um, and, you know, wound up landing a residency at temple nightclub, which was like a really big, uh, venue in SF and kind of held that down and hosted and promoted and DJed, um, a Friday party for a couple of years. Uh, and I was also doing a residency for this really cool events company called Flavor Group. And we were working with corporate sponsors to do like really big events. And that was super fun. And, you know, there's just like a lot happening at that time. And and at the same time as I'm doing all this, you know, I'm, I'm in the studio learning how to make music and do remixes. I'm launching a music label and I got hired as uh, in, in a marketing job. Um, and so... For a couple of years, my life was extremely hectic. I was at the epicenter of a lot of different things that were happening. Had a lot of responsibilities at, at my marketing job, um, and and then I'm you know launching a music label, throwing parties, uh, DJing, remixing, uh, starting to release music, 
And it just got to a point where um, I had to make a decision. I came to this crossroads and, you know, I, I needed to either like just become a marketing professional and leave the music stuff behind, right. which would have been very secure and, you know, would have had a very clear path as to how I would continue to succeed and grow my career. And, um, you know, it would have been very stable and I, and I would have known what my paycheck was going to be um, or, um, you know, or I would have to give up that comfort, stability, security and kind of bet on myself. Right. And 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 really put everything into the music. And for me, it was just kind of a no brainer. I had to really think about what do I value in life? And, you know, I really value adventure and freedom and flexibility more than I value security. Yeah. And so I took a really big risk and, you know, uh, it got real difficult real quick after I left my marketing job within a short period of time. I lost like my main residency at Temple, which had been like the bulk of my income. And I really struggled and, you know, cost of living went haywire in San Francisco. And, and, and I was involved in like, this has nothing to do with my music career, but I was involved in a lawsuit with a former landlady that settled in a way that was favorable to me, but not really because the lawyer I had hired um, settled the case for less money than I had paid him. Okay. So I lost a bunch of money on that. And I just, uh, you know, and, and I just couldn't keep up in SF. And, um, well, it's funny. I just read an article literally today and they interviewed one of my friends who owns a restaurant up there. San Francisco is just turning into a mess. I oh, mean, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. And they're saying... The pressure is just... It's 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 unbelievable. I mean, yeah. you just have so much flooding the market with, with money, right? And so... Um, and, and, and also, I kind of felt like when I really dove into my desire to, to have music be my career and to do something larger... I got a lot of pushback from from the local scene there. And that would really made me sad because I had invested significant amounts of time, energy, money, resources into trying to build something there. And I just felt like the scene just turned its back on me when I, you know, really expressed the desire to make something more of myself. And so, um, yeah, I just kind of felt like a lame duck there. And, um, you know, when I had the opportunity to, to move to L.A., I did. And I, it was a big risk for me. You so know? what do you mean you had the opportunity? Did you make a conscious decision like, I want to get out of San Francisco? Yeah, and, and it took me a couple of years. I mean, I had already decided that when this whole lawsuit was going on. Um, and I actually was going to move while it was happening. And then uh, there was just like, there, there was, a, it was a really rough day for me. But like, at the, on the, on like basically the same day, I was like about to sign a lease on an apartment in Silver Lake. And then the roommate I was going to move in with dropped out and um, and my lawyer hit me up and was like, I need another retainer to keep working on this case. And so I basically had to decide, like, OK, I either drop this lawsuit and just like move to L.A. or like just stick it out. And I mean, it just seemed like a better decision to stick it out. So um, particularly also because the, the roommate had dropped out. So. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So the last couple of years I was in San Francisco, I really didn't want to be there anymore. I had done everything I was going to do there. You know, I had played all the big venues. I had thrown really great parties. Like I had really established myself. You know, I've been interviewed by most of the press there. Um, you know, and, and like I felt like to whatever extent I was like, you know, I was an accomplished like name in that city. And I felt like it didn't matter anywhere else. You know, I felt like people weren't looking to San Francisco to find cool new talent other than Dirty Bird, which God bless them. I don't know how they did it. For right. Me. But um, so you, you know, kind of had to start all over again in L.A. More or less, although I did have advantages, um, and that was one of the things. I think you know, I think what I've seen from the time I've been in LA, it's much easier to come here on the back of being successful somewhere else and establish yourself than it is to try to build from scratch here. 
So I already had a, a large measure of credibility here. Um, you know, and some of the players down here, like especially the insiders, already knew who I was because I had been opening for their artists in San Francisco, right? And I had been playing, um, you know, like I Dim Mac used to, th which is Steve Aoki's label, like they used to throw a party in San Francisco wow. and I played for that there. And then they brought me down to play for them here. So I had actually already played LA when I came here and I played Control at Avalon. It's really funny because like I haven't played either of those. Uh, I mean, Dim Mac is no longer in existence, but since moving here, I, I didn't play Dim Mac again and I didn't, I haven't played Avalon since I moved here. But, um, but like my name had some credibility and then also there are you know like i just again whether it's the universe or you know my dedication to hustle or whatever i mean i made sure to let everybody know in the industry like look i'm making this move like i'm looking for opportunities in la and um it wound up coming in the form of um when supper club was open in hollywood um you know i had done a bunch of work with supper club in san francisco and Sure enough, like a couple of months after I moved here, I don't know what they did. It's like DJing is like a hard job to lose, right? You can like, <laughs> right. you can get completely hammered and like hit on the wrong person and, you know, like uh, you train wreck a mix. And, but I don't know what this person, but somehow they screwed up. <laughs> yeah. like, so they got booted. And so Supper Club needed someone in short order to like just DJ their, you know, some of their dinner sets. And so they started pulling me in for that. And then, you know, like they had another venue called the Writer's Room next door that oh, they were yeah. having DJ at. So I would play there. And then they gave me like a weekly residency at Writer Room. And I would play two, three, four times a month at Supper Club. And um, Were you doing um, records at this point still? No, 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 no. I switched, I switched to CDs when I was in San Francisco. Okay. And then I think I was still on CDs when I first moved to L.A. And then I switched to USBs. Uh, really when the players all started taking them because and it's like how do not you having a CD wallet is going How do you feel about, you know, how people are primarily just DJing, you know, with their laptop and not bringing records or, or that's just how it is now? It's not the medium, it's the music. I, yeah. You know, and like when people say that they think they can tell a difference between analog and digital, they have no idea what they're talking about. Right. Like you can go online and look at studies where like professional recording engineers cannot tell you when they're hearing a, an MP3 that's high quality or a wave, it's just like there is no correlation between what they think they're hearing and what they're actually hearing. So right. it's literally people's bias and perception that they think that there's a difference. There is no, like the high quality audio thing, nice to have. And maybe if you are in the top 0.1% of audio engineers and you have a sound system that you listen to music on that is incredibly high fidelity, maybe there's a slight difference. Your average person's never ever going to hear it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's a very overblown. I, I think if you can if you can you know read a room, and you can you know vibe with people, and you've yeah. got good taste and selection and flow, and you know you have some showmanship. It does. I don't care what you're using. What I do have a problem with is when people pretend to be using equipment that they're not using. That to me is like ridiculous. What and do I'm, you mean? I'm not going to name names, but there's a duo who I've seen a couple times, and they are. They're not mixing their music live. They have all of their tracks in an Ableton set. Oh, and wow. they're just playing it off of that. And it's fine. Like, there's no problem doing that, right? Like, I don't have an issue with that. If that's what you're doing, get a cool MIDI controller with some cool lights on it. And, like, play around with the effects while you're doing it or make it interesting. These people literally pretend that they're DJing using the CDJs. And they're doing nothing. Like, wow. they're pressing the play button and adjusting the pitch. And it's not controlling anything. And they're, like, you know, like turning knobs and then they're using their headphones and when you're mixing an ableton you don't need your headphones yeah. like it grids everything for you you're not cueing anything in your headphones so they're like bouncing around with the music in their headphones and there's nothing in their headphones it's like <laughs> so i see that and i'm just like why 
Right. What is the point? Like, what are you doing? Well, because you know, some because DJs... you can make a very interesting like MIDI performance. Uh, I mean, I, I would recommend people go see Daedalus if they haven't. Like, you know, he does that. He's not like DJing live, but he's he's you know he's playing his tracks and they're mixed together using Ableton. But he's doing crazy stuff with like a modem. You know, right. I don't know if he's still doing that now, but he was. And like, so you know, he's got like he's got a setup that like makes sense for what he's doing. And he's not like pretending to be something he's not. When people pretend that they're like some underground thing. And they're like a manufactured brand. It makes no sense to me. At so all. you don't you don't consider people that DJ with vinyl more of a DJ than those that are just DJing, you no, know, um, with a laptop? So. And no, okay, no. I think it's 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 the music, not the medium. Well, yeah, I've always felt that way because I, to me, the uh, believe me, I'm still new at DJing. There's better DJs than I am, but I can read a room really well, and I think that's more, in my opinion, I think that's more important than anything. It's very important. Or maybe and, it's... And, or, well, it's, you know, it, it, it all it all works in concert. But certainly, you know, look, early on there were DJs who were tremendously respected, who were selectors. They didn't even mix their records together. They would play one record and play another record. Yeah. Right. So there are people, that was their whole art. But the thing is that I think if you only have that, you have to be so phenomenal at that to, like, actually build and get credibility for that. It would really take take a lot. But to me, you know, for me, and especially the style of music I play and make and the way that I DJ, it's really this like combination of like track selection, mixing technique and, um, you know, and then like the, the crowd interaction. And, you know, I guess like I've really in the last year taken my DJing to what I would consider to be a higher level because I recognize that there's so much competition in the market. So now most of the time, if I'm mixing anything on the techie side of like tech house or techno, I'm playing three records together at once hmm. and I'm mixing all of them like live. I don't use auto sync ever. And, and, and it's creating some really cool combinations. And so even if you've heard the records before, you're never going to hear them mixed together in the way that I'm mixing them, you know, and I don't practice my mix. I just like, it's, it's all on the fly because I really believe in like, you know, the improvisational element of sure. DJing. That's why like, I would always rather go see a DJ play than go hear a live musician because the chances are you know maybe they're going to do a cover but by and large i know what a musician's going to play when i go hear a dj i don't know what they're going to do even if they're a producer like maybe they're going to play you know 10 percent of their music that would be a lot do you, you know? practice a lot at home or never you, but you must have at first of course but yeah. now it's because yeah it's okay. it's riding a bike for me now you know and i yeah. play out a lot you know i probably do 150 shows a year so it's not you know I you could, don't need to practice yeah, anymore. I could. I mean, I'm sure it could. There wouldn't. It wouldn't be harmful for me. It's just like an allocation of space that I don't dedicate that much space to music. Yeah. I'd rather you know I have like production gear that takes up that space instead of like CDJs or whatever. But did you ever have to? You know, what do you DJ on right now? What's your controller? Uh, I use CDJs, but also like I'm you know I'm comfortable using anything. Okay. Know? Like like I've I've DJed on controllers. I've DJed on Serato, uh, using turntables or CDJs. But yeah, my preferred setup is just to have CDJs that are linked via Ethernet and just pop in a USB, and I have my playlist all curated. Okay, and, you know, and I, I do it loosely by genre, um, just so I kind of have the right the right vibe. And um, yeah, that's basically you know, and that just gives me the ability to kind of just go with what I feel, you know, in yeah. the moment. Um, that's always kind of what what guides me. I try to have a sixth sense about it, and I, I probably don't have enough ego to think that I do have a sixth sense about it, but. I just try to get in the flow and play the next track that feels right. You know, I'm really into my health. 
And uh, I know you're a vegan now. 19 years. So there's obviously a, a, you know, I think about my hearing when I DJ. And I think about like staying out till 2, 2.30 in the morning and then sleep. And um, and you're making a living doing this. And, you know, I don't, for how many years you can do that as you get older? I mean, in your 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a taxing profession. Um, how often do you think about that? Well, I'm very dedicated to my health, so I try to take extraordinary care of my body. Um, in terms of the sleep schedule, from what I understand, it's just more important to have one. So hmm. I know it's best to go to bed around the same time every night. So I try to always go to bed around 2.30 or 3. Even if you don't have a gig. Even if I don't have a gig. Interesting. Yeah, that's important for me. And um, that makes the winters a little bit tougher. I mean, it's, it's a little easier in L.A., but, you know, our days don't get that short, but they do get shorter. And so, like... I probably experience a little bit of seasonal depression around this time of year, just with the like less sunshine. Um, but, but that, that gives it some sense for me, you know, like, so even if, you know, sometimes I have night owl friends I can hang out with till late at night, but other times I'm just kind of doing my own thing, whether it's, you know, writing emails or playing video games on my phone or watching, you know, a documentary or something to entertain myself. Like I do make it a point to, to stay up until um, about two thirty or three every night. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, I spend a lot of time at the gym, uh, taking care of my body in terms of my hearing. I'm very protective. I always, I have custom musicians earplugs. Uh, every time I go out, um, I wear them. Did you wear them at sound that one night? I don't think I, 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 Cause I don't think I saw no, them. I, well, you wouldn't see them anyways. Oh, okay. I don't typically have them in while I'm DJing. Yeah, but it's so loud. Well, in it there. depends. Yeah. So like sound is actually, it's loud, but it's not insanely loud. When I DJ at a festival, like I've played Coachella and Outside Lands and things like this, they have ridiculous sound systems. Where right. You have a full st- like at sound. So at a gig like sound, the booth monitor is is controllable um, by a knob on the mixer, so I can mm-hmm. control the volume. Right. So typically, when I'm not mixing, I try to turn that down so I don't have it blaring right in my ear. Um, but yeah, I, I there's probably, you know, I've probably had a tiny little bit of hearing loss, but it's really not bad and it's because I am really good about. It. But but there are gigs where I do use the 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 ear the earplugs while I play. Like when I played Exchange last month, uh rather in November, uh I I definitely, you know, that's a very very loud system. Yeah. Like that's, you know, louder. I mean, it's a different room. Um but it's it's louder than sound. And like the monitor system is like having a full speaker stack right next to your head. Right. So that one I made sure, you know, I just and it, it's loud enough that I could just DJ with my uh with my earplugs in and you know, still be able to mix okay. Um but yeah, and and oftentimes in the studio, I'll even like I collaborate a lot, but I'll be in the studio and if people are like wanting to work with music loud, I'll just put my earplugs in, yeah. you know, and that just deadens everything. Like, I think it's a, it's a, it's an even cut across every frequency spectrum of like 15 to 20 decibels. And, um, so yeah, I do try to take care because to me, my ears are, you know, that's how I pay my rent. Yeah. That's everything. Right? So it's the same thing as like a surgeon takes care of his hands or like, you know, a carpenter takes care of you know, his whole body because he needs to be able to, you know, or a model, you know, it's going to take care of her body. It's just like, that's, you know, whatever it is, if you're, if you're earning a living, uh, you know, based off a certain skill, you kind of have to protect that, you know? Right. And so it's the same as like athletes have to, you know, do certain things and, um, and care for themselves. So yeah, I do think about that. Um, I mean, the thing is for me, like, I really love DJing. Like I hope to be DJing into my sixties, you know, okay. I mean, I'd love to be in a place where 
I don't have to DJ a lot at that point. Hmm. You know, I'd like to be able to be really selective and only do really cool experiences that I think would be great. And I hope that my rates are extremely high at that point in my life. But, um, you know, I enjoy it so much. It's hard to think about like not ever wanting to do it. You know, like it's, I I maybe wouldn't want to be grinding it out and playing, you know, four or five nights a week at that time in life. Um, I mean, who knows where I'll be then, but, um, but it is something I really love. And, and I think if I haven't gotten sick of it yet, I mean, I've been consistently DJing now for almost 14 years. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I mean, for me, it really is magical. It really is a passion. It really feels like my calling in life. And so, uh, you know, I hope to do it for as long as I, as I possibly can. You know? Yeah. And, and, and I feel fortunate. Like I said, I feel very, very blessed as much as like I'm an extremely driven person with huge ambitions um, and I want to succeed in a really big way. I'm also very grateful, you know, to, to be able to earn my living doing what I love and nothing else. Um, but yeah, health is extremely important to me. And, and so I do, I do balance that, you know, I'm also like, not everyone knows this about me, but like, I don't drink or use drugs. And that makes the lifestyle way more sustainable for me too, because right. like, that's what causes a lot of people to fall off. And, 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 um, you know, I see DJs like have to deal with depression because they're on the road and they're drinking all the time and, you know, and they just abuse their bodies and, and their clocks are all messed up. And, um, you know, I do try to really prioritize my health and make sure like, you know, when I do travel that it's in a way that is conducive to me continuing to have some kind of routine and at least do some physical activity. You know, if I yeah. can't do like my normal weight program day on that day, that's okay. But make sure I get some physical activity in and, you know, make sure to, to get sleep and, and to eat well. And that's very, very important to me. And it, it impacts everything in my life, you know, and, and it certainly it impacts like, how much energy I have to bring to the decks or bring to a studio session. And so I try to be operating at like, you know, optimal levels at all times as much right. as I can, you know, what's, um, give me one or two of your best memories as a DJ or like your, I mean, obviously Coachella must've been a big deal or maybe you're like, yeah, Coachella what? wouldn't be in my top five. <sighs> I mean, I've certainly had some nights at sound that have been incredible. Uh, DJing with, I've DJed twice at sound with Kidnap, two or three times. And he is, that's been a really, really great pairing for me. That's probably on the list somewhere. There's definitely, there's definitely one to three nights in sound that are in my top five. Uh, in San Francisco, there was an event called, well, it was initially called Love Fest. And it was patterned after, um, after Love Fest in Germany. But then it turned out there's like a, a festival in LA that's called love fest that mm-hmm. like patented the name. So they had to change the name. So then they changed it to love evolution. This tells you what kind of freaks were in San Francisco at that time. So, but it was, it was, this was like a roving party that had these giant floats that went down market street and ended at civic center in, in a giant square. And there were all these sound systems and it was a crazy, huge party. And, um, it must've been insane back it, then. It was amazing. It was, I mean, San Francisco <laughs> would just roll up the streets and throw parties all the time. Like, yeah. It was not hard to get permits. And, you know, there's like money floating around, but really cool people had it. Right. So they would just do these crazy cool things. So um, but the production company flavor group that I ended up going on to work for, um, they they had uh, they had this float that they produced every year called Solid Gold Jacuzzi. Uh, I don't know where they came up with that kind of just weird concept. Sometimes weird things just catch on. There was no jacuzzi, I don't think, on the float, but uh, <laughs> not this year. But we had uh, so all the floats had to be on like a flatbed truck. And so the way that ours was set up, there was um, a scissor lift on top of the truck. 
And so the DJ booth was on the scissor lift. So you had the ability while DJing to raise up 40 feet in the air on top of already being on a platform truck. And so that day, like, uh, I forget what year this is. It's maybe 2008, maybe 2009. I DJed uh, on that float and at Civic Center with a great time slot right before Groove Armada with like 20 to 30,000 people just absolutely losing their mind and that that's definitely that's definitely up there for sure um you know warehouse parties are 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 a huge one i mean that's definitely been uh you know recently in la i've had the opportunity to play for a really cool underground crew called understated um i've actually released a record on their label too um you know they throw really awesome parties and you know and i have have so i think warehouse parties would be in there love evolution would be in there sound would definitely be in there um. Yeah, those are the ones off the top of my head that really have just been like. But you know, there's too many to count at this point. You know, yeah. in 14 years, mm-hmm. I've definitely had just a lot of just incredible nights. And like I said, any time that I can, you know, just kind of leave my body and just be totally immersed in the music and just be feeling it. Um, you know, and just be like, and mixing becomes a second nature, and I don't have to think about right. what I'm doing at all. Right, and it's like, <clears throat> it's just like. That that's the, that's the coolest feeling in the world, and I chase that, you know, and 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 I feel great after doing that, you know, and so and and I feel like I do, you know, I get a lot of feedback from people, you know, yourself included, but when people tell me that like my music has touched them in some kind of way, like it's it's just very affirming, you know, and 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 anytime, you know, there have been difficult moments in my career, and and there's definitely been times where I thought about giving it up and then every single time like something has happened that just really has reaffirmed that i'm like doing the right thing yeah you know um well i think the world of djing i don't know if it's because of guys like stevie Oki or calvin harris or what's going on in vegas or dylan francis but i just it feels like djs are bigger now than ever before i mean more more commercial or more out there or well yeah i think in 2011 2012 djs became pop stars in ways that they never were before right like when we were doing rave parties it was like a very specific circuit and there were club djs and stuff like that i also think someone that doesn't get talked about enough and probably because he's dead is dj am like he was Hmm. a rock star dj you know and he did open format djing but he did it in a way that no one else did and he was like you know he was like a big deal you know what i mean he was like headlining as a dj right i feel like i saw netflix or something about him yeah i don't know there's definitely a movie about his life i don't know if it ever hit netflix but um yeah he so but yeah there was definitely that era you know and and where djs just exploded calvin harris was certainly i mean you know there was a crossover that happened around 2011 2012 where pop artists started working with dj producers david Guetta started producing for rihanna and black eyed peas and then calvin harris and, and rihanna and like they're just and they produced these massive hits that like Huge. struck this chord and crossed over and really changed, you know, changed changed dance music in in the public perception. There were several moments throughout the 90s and the early aughts that dance music had an opportunity to cross over and almost did, whether it was like the whole Daft Punk Moby Chemical Brothers thing that was happening in the 90s or um, you know, in in the two I don't even remember who it was in 2000, but there were a couple of times where it was bubbling up and almost crossed over but then didn't, you know. And and I also think this is why, like, I don't entirely hate on social media because there is, like, this democratization of the spread of information. And, you know, a lot of electronic music blew up on SoundCloud, you mm, know, and that was yeah. literally through people like, man, I love this song and reposting it to their profiles. And they, you could truly go viral on SoundCloud for a while. 
Um, and, you know, and I think like that platform has gone the way of MySpace, you know, like, like to me, SoundCloud is like the MySpace of music where like, yeah, there's still some users on there, but like, not really, you know, or like right. Facebook now, you know, like it's like, it's still there, but it's kind of a ghost town. I feel like SoundCloud is that way now. Now everybody's on like Spotify or Apple Music and which is great because, you know, we actually get paid for those streams and uh, SoundCloud never paid out, but uh, unless you were like a major label <laughs> artist, but, um, you know, I think... Um, well, everything that Calvin Harris did, I feel like, on those records, every every song was, was a hit. Yeah. I mean, I was blown away. I don't know if he wrote the songs. I never read the... the um, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's really funny what happened with Calvin because uh, I remember seeing him in 2010, 2011. He was like a pretty cool, like, under not quite underground, but like indie dance artist. And he sang all his own stuff at that time. Interesting. Yeah, he's got a whole album. And he did some really, like, he has a song called um, uh, Acceptable in the 80s that was really good. I mean, he just had, like, some really fun, like, dancey bangers in this, like, you know. There was also, like, this cauldron of things happening, like, around 2007, 2008 that I think led up to that, which was, like, justice blowing up and Mastercraft and this kind of remix thing that was happening, you know, and Vice Magazine is, like, doing a record label and pushing this. And, like, there was this very cool confluence where, like, you could go to a Dim Mac party in 2008 and, like, Kanye West would be hanging out, you know, with Steve Aoki. And it was just, like, you know, everyone kind of mixed in this scene um, in in a way that, like, they, you know, you you wouldn't see, like, typically. Things wouldn't cross genres in the same way. But, like, where you've got, you know, Crooker's remixing Kid Cudi, and then that's blowing up bigger than the Kid Cudi record did. And, like, things like that that happened that just was, like, it was just this moment, you know. Um, And so I think a lot of what we're in now is, like, grew out of all of that. Grew out of, like, this kind of dance rock hybrid stuff, uh, remix culture, and then crossing into the pop world. and, And then also just, like, music production techniques catching up, you know, where, like, you know, the big music producers used to be like, oh, no, you have to use Pro Tools and you have to write on a, on a you know, on a Moog and on a Rhodes and on a Korg. And then it's kind of like, no, we can make, you know, like we can make super high level, like high quality music on our laptop. You know, Skrillex blew up and he was ma- literally made all of that early stuff on his laptop. Yeah. You know, he did, didn't work in big studios, even though he had like a history with an emo band that he left. Like, you know, and so I think I think there's. This is where, like, the democratization of the tools, uh, I think, can yield results and can give people opportunities. And I know that it doesn't happen for most people, but it, it does put people on who would have never necessarily had the chance without it. You know, like a kid in his bedroom, you know, who has, like, a little bit of social media savvy can, like, make it and can blow up. I met um, Porter Robinson when he was 16 years old, when he was, like, playing in San Francisco for the first time ever. And he was, like, 16-year-old kid, you know, like, and just making you know, pretty far out, like complex electro progressive music on his laptop. And then next thing you know, like he was huge. And, yeah. and so that, you know, was he I, using logic or Ableton? I don't know. I yeah. guess like, most of us, use? I use Ableton, use um, Ableton. Okay. but it, a lot of people use logic too. I guess it depends just what their preference is. But uh, so maybe that's part of why I have a more positive like spin of social media, because I do think social media has a huge part in the rise of, of dance music as you know, as like a pillar of popular music, you know, I mean, like I'm on a label uh, here locally called Little Assembly that uh, does some really cool stuff. And I'm the only electronic artist that they have to this, you know, to this point, they may sign others, but all the other ones are like kind of indie, indie pop, indie rock ish. And just the audience is so much bigger, you know, like the the success we've had with my record 
um, that I put out with them last year, it's, I mean, just the audience it builds is, it's so much stronger. And that's all a result of like, literally like people sharing all this, the people sharing YouTube videos, with their friends and stuff like that. Yeah. So, So I do think, um, yeah, I think I think the, one of the cool things about electronic music is it kind of grew from inside out, and the music business had to kind of catch up with it um, in, in ways that it wasn't manufactured. You know, the, everyone was like, "How do we get in on this?" Was more how they thought about it, not yeah. like you know, not like a you know, not like Jimmy Iovine is like sitting in an office, like, "All right, let's come up with the next thing." It wasn't that way, you know. Happened again, and also happened like it's, electronic music is so much driven by live shows. I think that's another thing that's unique about it, you know, like experiencing. A live set from a DJ, like you feel the records in a way that you don't when you're just like listening to a track in your car. I mean, right. A lot of times, like the the one the tracks that really make me feel something in my car or you know in my headphones is because I remember hearing it in the club for the first time yeah. and what that felt like. Right. So. Well, there were artists that, and even like Groove Armada, there were artists that commercialized it and made it more popular. Yeah, Dirty Vegas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and also you know I think Europe was always a lot more open to dance music than the US. I think, you know, clubbing as a culture in Europe is really really deep. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of everybody goes to the club when they're kids in Europe. And 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 that's a, that's it is that way now in the US. It wasn't up until the last I would say 10 years. So, I think there's a lot more opportunity now and 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 like I said that's part of why I feel really blessed when I started doing this. I never for an instant thought like this was going to be a career move for me right. at all. You know, there just wasn't the audience for it. It wasn't really the opportunity. Um you know, so I, you know, some people think that like, you know, the commercialization of dance music is sort of bad for it and is a sellout and like that may be true, but also it just affords opportunities. And, you know, look, I've had music in TSI Miami and um, and like a major league soccer commercial and I've had music licensed by Hitachi and none of that happens if, you know, if these crossover things don't go right. on. If it's not like cool to be a part of this and people just think it's like a bunch of weird nerds like making loops on their computer, you know, like none of that happens. So, um, you know, you got to kind of take the good with the bad and everything was cooler back when. Look, when I went to Burning Man in 2004 and it was 30,000 people and you kind of knew almost, you know, you could kind of recognize a ton of faces there. It was awesome. That's not what it is now. But does that mean that it's someone who goes to it for the first time now doesn't have a great experience yeah. that might change their life? No, they can still have that happen. It's the same with dance music. Like, I didn't experience dance music at a massive festival with 100,000 people. I went to a warehouse party that had 100 people and lost my mind. But, like, if I went for the first time now as, like, a 17-year-old going to that, you know, going to EDC... Would it have the potential to touch my life in the same? Maybe it would. You know what I mean? So it's like you can't really step in the same river twice. You can't compare apples and oranges. And so I think like, you know, thinking that it was better, you know, before it was big is like kind of, you know, I don't know. Being a yeah. purist is just this is not my thing. You know, we got to evolve and and push forward and uh, and grow. You know, and, and and I think I think it's amazing. Again, like. You know, we have the tools to, to reach, you know, millions of people in the world with music that in a way that, you know, we couldn't, you know, 10 years ago. And so I, I think that's really awesome and inspires me to, to keep keep making music, keep releasing it. And, you know, you just never know. Like the, the song of mine that's yeah. been the biggest, I had no clue. I thought it was the throwaway. And, and, and I pushed it out uh, as the first single on my last EP because I really believed in the message. And I thought that no one was going to hear it if I didn't push it out first because I hadn't put up music, any original music in like a year. And so I was like, all right, at least people will listen to this because it's new. And then like we'll put the hit out after that, um, you know, and, and and it was like the song that I thought was like not going to really pop like that one blew up super big. Right. So you just don't know. And you just like you keep taking shots 
and uh, and you keep trying different things and throwing things at the wall and like you never know what's what's really gonna stick, you know. Well, cool. Yeah. Um, I th- if it weren't for my <clears throat> oddly sarcastic quotes on Instagram, I don't think you'd. And then I mean, running into Ray at that yeah. audition, I don't think you'd be here right now. Yeah. Maybe um, not. You never know. Yeah. It's uh, well, I. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's been really interesting hearing about your perspective on our world in social media. Uh, it's actually made me, you know, feel slightly more hopeful and positive. That's good. That's good. We should all feel more hopeful and positive. We only live once. So. Yeah, right. I think uh, you know. I just I, I, really quick. I just sometimes I think artists that aren't particularly very talented are able to manipulate the system. Absolutely, and they get all the attention. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's going on. Well, that is look. That is that is that is a consequence of the social media. Is that it does skew towards people who are good at business and marketing yes. and get opportunities over people necessarily who may be more talented than they are but aren't as savvy absolutely that is a thing so again i think it's just happening more and more and i think it was it was so cool to see you perform and have your do your set and you're you're the real deal you're a great dj um i don't see why you couldn't be opening for bob moses or or somebody i mean Get, type in Bob Moses booking agency who the hell's booking his shows and or manager and freaking send him an email because I think they'd be thrilled to have somebody like you opening for them I mean it's just it's a no brainer yeah um, I think it's a little more political than that yeah it, it always it is unfortunately but um, I mean I'm trying I'm not trying to simplify something that I'm sure is very challenging but there I could I could see it happening yeah um, well Eric Sharp DJ in Los Angeles. He can be found at Eric Sharp Music on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, his website's ericsharpmusic.com. Yeah, although I never update that. Right. Just, if you're listening to this and you want to hear my music, just find me on Spotify there or Apple go. Music and follow me on there. And, you know, like you'll get all, you'll, you know, you'll get my music in your and feed and hopefully you like it. And he's at Sound, um, Sound Nightclub pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And how about like, this summer where more than likely where could people see your, see your set? I'll probably, you know, most summers I'll probably do a show on the roof of the W. I'll probably do a show at Mondrian. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what beyond that, you know, hopefully a festival performance or two. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have anything locked in. Yet, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but that's typically. It. Yeah. yeah, cool, yeah, man. Normally. Well, um, Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast, Eric Sharp, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having I appreciate me. you making the time. And uh, I'll, I'll uh, talk to you guys next week. Thanks so much. Thanks.